Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why popular music happens, hosted by Nate Wilcox. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Roll Cast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Nate uses AKG microphones and headphones. Today, author Harold Claros Maldonado joins Nate to discuss his book, Heavy Tales, The Metal, The Music, The Madness, As Lived by John Zazula. In this episode, Harold and Nate discuss John Zazula's career as the manager of Metallica and Anthrax, his label Megaforce Records, and its bands Manowar, Raven, Testament, King's X, and more. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. host Nate Wilcox and today we're joined by Harold Claros Maldonado, the co-author of Heavy Tales, The Metal, The Music, The Madness, as lived by John Zazula. Harold, welcome to the show. Hey, what's up, man? How's it going? It's good. Glad to have you here. I really enjoyed this book. John Zazula, for those who aren't metalheads, is a pretty legendary figure in the world of speed metal as the founder and owner of Megaforce Records, co-owner with his wife, Marsha, um, and you know, they put out the first two Metallica albums, the first, what, four Anthrax albums, Stormtroopers of Death. They also licensed the American releases of albums by Raven, Venom, Man of War. Um, so just an enormous impact on the metal scene in the 80s. They also signed King's X and Mind Funk and, you know, had Living Color on the label at one point. This is a storied label, and you co-wrote his autobiography with him. How did you get that hookup? You know, it's honestly such a... Uh sort of like a world's colliding, you know, like the, the universe had to be uh, sort of set for this to happen. I'm a, I'm like a huge metal scholar, right? Like I, I, I studied history in college. I've, I've always loved the music and the history of it. And after college, I decided to have like my own very detailed Metallica zine. Um, I love numbers and statistics and, you know, so I was going about it sort of that way. And I thought, you know, it would be really cool if I could somehow get someone who had worked with Metallica, like a roadie or, 
people who saw them. Um, and then that would made me make my zine a little better. I got in contact uh, through crazed management. I, I emailed them and John Zazula emailed me back. So I, I just thought that's sort of as, as far as the story's going. He's going to be in my zine. I'm going to be the coolest guy in the world. And while we were talking, he realized that I was just like a total freak, just like him. You know, I was, I was like correcting him on dates. And then we were talking about don't break the oath and just all these, all these crazy stuff. And he says, Hey, look, dude, I'm thinking about writing my book and you may be the guy who's going to help me do this. How about you come down, visit me and let's have like a business deal, a little business meeting together. And I flew out to go see him, man. I'm by, I, by no means am I like made of money. So I was flying spirit airlines. Like I was sitting right next to like the toilet. It was a shitty flight, <laughs> but you know, getting to see him and getting to talk to him and Marsha, you know, and, and really wanting this story to be out there, you know, people know about Brian Slagle. And I told him that people should speak about John Zazula the same way that they speak about Brian Slagle. It's a Bill Gates, Steve Jobs sort of world, as far as I'm concerned, with what John Zazula um, has helped in the, in the development of this uh, musical genre. And we went to work right away. And there were some really long nights. I mean, it was sort of un, uncharted waters for both of us. But if you're familiar with his story, and then obviously now that you've read it, it seems that he really likes to go through uncharted waters. It, it, it's like that's just who John is. Um, there's no roadmap to what he does. And that's, that's really how we got hooked up just – through through fate, honestly. And Brian Slagle's the the head of Metal Blade Records, which was Megaforce's biggest rival as a as an independent metal label back in the '80s. So, yeah, that's a classic John Z story. The guy from reading the book. I mean, obviously, he's a risk taker as an entrepreneur, but it's a pretty unbelievable story of. I had no idea just how shoestring that operation was and how I wouldn't say fly by night because obviously he delivered and the, the records are still in print and, and, you know, many careers were made, but wow. I mean, this was really, yeah. on, he was really on the knife edge the whole time. And you mentioned craze management. That was the management company that he founded to manage Metallica initially. And he wasn't just a record label and a manager he was also a promoter but let's let's backtrack a little bit and tell what john what was john z doing before he was a record executive what, what was his his prior career history like so john grows up in new york right classic kid of the 60s into the grateful dead and jefferson airplane dropping acid um really this like rock revolution that's being imported from England and then sort of being Americanized by the bands in Haight-Ashbury. And John is just one of many, many fans that were sort of touched by that, that metal uh, sort of gene, you know, at the time, obviously there was no word for what was going on. There was no word to call cream heavy metal, but it was definitely different than the Beatles. 
<laughs> it was different than the Dave Clark five. And yes. uh, John just gets wrapped up in this world of music and not just what's going on in Europe, but what's going on also in New York into the punk movement with the Ramones, the art movement with, um, with, with, with Blondie and the cars. And just like many, many of us, we sort of live by that music, but we don't always necessarily, uh, our, our passion doesn't pay the bills. And John was a fan of music, but he was a pretty straight laced kind of guy. He already had his daughter. He had been married. He bought a home. So he was living a pretty, as he calls it, a pretty boring suburban life where he's working on wall street. He's making investments. I learned a lot about investment from, from listening to John's stories about investment banking. So he's really just living this suitcase and tie kind of life while also just being a fan of heavy metal and through unfortunate, fortunate fates, um, he really had to hit rock bottom in order to see his life's true calling in the music business. And tell us about how he hit rock bottom. I don't want to use the word boiler room, but um, he was <laughs> trading some commodities and uh, the federal government didn't take, it was tantalum was the commodity he was trading and it has to be yes, yes. pure. Tell us that story. So there's, from what my understanding is that there were certain metals that were being sold that weren't as pure as they had been told to the seller. Uh, some would call this uh, legally known as fraud. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, or a white lie or what Wall Street people do. It's definitely uh, white collar crime, even in the Trump era, <laughs> I think it's still illegal. <laughs> So him and a ton of other people get indicted and he loses his job. He loses his license. He can't drive a vehicle. He is in a halfway house. He can't live in his own home. He has children at, at his house. He has his wife. Uh, he has a brand new car that he bought mortgage payments. I'm talking about an actual stress, a financial big, big stress and he is only allowed the weekends off. So he starts working on the weekends and then he's allowed Fridays off in order to work. So in order to make some extra money, right, he's, he's working at this sort of like paper company, uh, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. But in order to make some extra money, he starts selling records at a flea market. He notices that, there is a man who's selling records and that there's a lot of people coming in and out. You know, it's a pretty good flow of traffic. And he asks the guy, Hey, look, can I just get like a corner? Not the whole thing. I just need a little corner. I have a pretty massive record collection and I'm not trying to cramp your style. So I'm just going to sell collectibles, box sets, picture discs, things for the holidays. Right. And this was around, winter of 81 and nothing happens. No one buys anything. So here, John 
again, is charting these un, uncharted waters where he tries to start this little business to get some money on the side and nobody is interested. And he puts up the money for the space and nobody is coming. And I think that is the, the rock bottom of John. But in order to get to the top, like that song, right, by ACDC, it's a long way to the top if you want to rock and roll. It doesn't happen overnight. And at that moment, someone buys uh, Sad Wings of Destiny, Judas Priest picture disc. And slowly, a traction starts building. And a word of mouth of this really cool little spot run by this kind of crazy man and his delightful wife. And it's this sort of, again, people have to sort of realize this is way, way, way pre-internet social media. So a community starts building around the flea market. An honest community from the New Jersey uh, suburbanites, from Old Bridge, from, from where he was living. And they ask him, hey, look, John, you're getting these great records. But I read on Kerrang! magazine, right, this amazing sort of brand new imported magazine from Europe about this band called Tigers of Pang Tang or we're hearing about this band called Iron Maiden. So John and Marsha have a distributor through Important Records where they go and they ask for things that no one knew about, that no one was asking for. I don't even know what people were asking for at that time. Fucking uh, the Bee Gees or some shit. Who the hell knows? But John and Marsha... <laughs> <laughs> or I don't know if I can. I mean, crew, fucking... hard rock fans. The crew wasn't out yet. I don't think the the hard rock fans were probably going for ACDC and Van Halen uh, at that yeah. time in the biggest the biggest way. And the crew was had not wouldn't happen for a couple more years. I don't think eighty one, eighty two. So I mean, what I'm what I'm saying is though, what I mean is that whatever people were buying the other record stores, what was on FM AM radio. You know, and what John was going after were the really sought after underground stuff because he knew that he had a market in order to be able to sell that. So he was getting Motorhead EPs and Motorhead Live at Hammersmith. Uh, like I said, uh, Diamond Head and Tigers of Pang Tang and Girls School, a lot of the new wave of British heavy metal that was coming out 79 to 82-ish, you know, that, that, that huge explosion. And that's really where he sort of shifts himself from being the Wall Street guy to, okay, this is my new job then. I'm, I'm in the music business. And his first, and then he makes the leap into promoting. He's he he gets the rock and roll heaven. You know, they segue from having a piece of a of a record booth at a flea market to having a whole record store at the flea market called Rock and Roll Heaven. They start marketing this new wave of British heavy metal stuff and building a big audience. And then he realizes there's a need for bands to have a place to play, and the band Anvil, which is sort of retrospectively become kind of pioneers of power metal thanks to the classic documentary about them and others, but they were yeah. really underground at the time and absolutely on the cutting edge of metal. And he books them a show there at the flea market and suddenly he's a music promoter. He's doing live concerts. 
and that's the thing with, with, with John and Marsha, it seems that it's all about how can I give back to, to these great loyal kids, right? This, the, the fans, Oh, the fans want me to bring this Canadian band Anvil. Sure. I don't know how I'm going to do this. I don't know where I'm going to do this, but we'll get this done for the kids, for the community. Right. So like a makeshift backstage is made for them with people's couches from their living room. Um, money is set aside in order to pay for the lawyers uh, to have them come over uh, since, since they're crossing the border, you know, to have um, uh, sort of lawyers, you know, figure the paperwork out for that. The flea market, this uh, sort of allows John to put this show on with all these strict restrictions, right? It has to start and end at a certain time. Certain things cannot be sold um, and so forth. And they blow out the power. So it's, again, these uncharted sort of waters where it's like, okay, well, now that we blew out the power, how are we supposed to get this? So it's phone calls to people who know someone who's got a cousin who runs a generator company. But at the end of the day, they got Anvil to come. And that's really, again, the sort of second shift, right? Where he goes, like you said, not only from selling these records and having this little record store, Rock and Roll Heaven, to now promoting. So now it's, oh, you want me to bring Raven from England. Okay, yeah, I can do that. Let's, let's see how that goes. And that sort of leads him, like you said, into this uh, sort of promotional shoes and the big Halloween bash that he has, the Headbangers Ball, which was coined, I don't know, maybe a couple of years prior to the show, 86, 87, that, that John was pulling these shows in 81, 82. Yeah, that's the show on MTV, and, the classic uh, Headbangers Ball yeah, video show from yeah, the mid-80s and MTV. With, uh, with uh, Ricky Ratman. <laughs> yeah. And, um, yeah, that dude. <laughs> and, um, you know, and it's, it's through this sort of uh, promotion, and he has this, this, great, um, this great sort of Halloween show, and Danny Lilker and Scott Ian, who were probably 17 years old or something at the time, are like hanging out backstage and sneaking in. And it's sort of this, this new whirlwind, but the bills are still not getting paid fully. That's something that like we wanted to stress, that it's not, oh my gosh, look at my great rock and roll life. It was, oh my gosh, I'm going crazy with this rock and roll life. And I'm also still not able to pay the bills right now. So why he continued to do it, why, why he, why his wife had that much um, sort of foresight or trust in her husband is really, really beyond me. They, they must've trusted in each other so much because what they were doing again, wasn't paying the bills at, at that specific time, at least, but they were going at it a hundred percent. And it's, through that, that, that he sort of then fully emerges himself within that scene and becomes really like the guy 
for East for like East Coast promotions. And because he's the guy for East Coast promotion, somebody who's visited the West Coast and comes home with a demo tape plays him something. And we're going to hear it right now. This is Metallica from their, uh, this is Metallica's Hit the Lights from their No Life Till Leather demo. This is the first time John Zazula hit, heard Metallica. Let's listen. Metallica doing a demo version of Hit the Lights, and that's the, the, the same tape that John Zazula heard, and he immediately gets on the phone, and he's already a, a basically unsuccessful record store owner, unsuccessful pr- concert promoter, and he decides, uh, not quite at this point, but now he decides he's going to get into management, and next thing he knows, he's wiring $1,500 to these basically teenagers in, in San Francisco, Metallica, to come out to get a U-Haul, bring all their stuff out, and come to Jersey, and and cut an album and do some shows. Tell us how that all happened. Yeah, that's that's honestly insane, right? Like, say that again. You find a band through a demo. You wire teenagers fifteen hundred dollars, and then have them stay at your home with their uh, their their roadie. Uh, sort of uh, their 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 roadie slash sort of house manager kind of guy uh, in in uh, Mark Whitaker. That's insane, dude. Like people don't do that. Um, I can't imagine what that feeling must have been like to hear probably a tenth generation copy <laughs> of of the No Life to Leather demo, but. John was hearing that with European ears, right? And that's like the big, big important thing is that he wasn't hearing it with these American ears. He was hearing it with these European ears. He said that this was America's answer to Motorhead. This was our response to Motorhead. And she sends him this money. They arrive at his house. Here they are, five snot-nosed, pimpled, ugly teenagers. And the first thing they do, they don't say hello, shake everyone's hand. He had company over. They immediately jump on his bar, the wagon bar that he's got. And they're guzzling down vodka straight from the bottle, just (laughs) down. Mustaine Mustaine is fighting over the fifth of vodka and Lars and James are fighting over this. And, you know, there's cracking beers and just like complete thrashing, kill them all attitude. And I, I sort of, I would suggest that anyone listening to, to this tonight, go and listen to kill them all again. Right. Because that is as authentic as an album, as they come, because these kids lived that, that life, they were the four horsemen and they were acting like, it was the apocalypse if they didn't get some booze down their throats. So they come to New York. Well, they, they, they come to Jersey to John's house to stay with him. 
um, because basically John had just sort of sweet talked to them into booking them some shows around the tri-state area. Some shows he was running, some shows he wasn't running, some shows opening up for Twisted Sister, who were very popular local at, at the time. And really, basically, he starts shopping the band's demo around because he believes in the band so much. He doesn't know what it is about it, but he he knows that this is on the cusp of something new, on the cusp of something uh, unlike what has had what had happened before. And he shops this around and no one gives a shit. No one is biting. Um, and again, I, I can't, I can't um, fault a lot of these record people because if at the time Bon Jovi was selling, uh, I don't really see someone wanting to, to release an album by a band named Metallica. So he goes and shops this around. No one gives a shit. No one wants to work with the band. So then him and Lars one night over a couple of beers, I'm assuming, just say, you know what? Fuck it. I'm going to release this. I think it would be a great idea to have an all metal label then. I'm already in this sort of business. Let's do this. If no one's going to put out this Metallica record, then I'm going to do it. And that, again, comes from that punk ethos, that DIY attitude of, I want something done, and it's not getting done by anybody else, then all right, I'll find a way to get this done. It needs to be released. That's what people need to understand, is that this album needed to be released, and no one else was doing it, so John did it. John put his own money and put a second mortgage on his home and was paying in like monthly payments and had borrowed money from his brother and sister-in-law in order to finance Kill em All. That is a, a passion. That is a foresight. Unlike anyone else, no one knows when they struck gold, but but John Zazula, there was something about those guys, specifically that time with those songs from that demo that, that needed to be released. And there were tons of issues when they were recording. They, they decided to record upstate. Um, and there were tons of issues because no producer knew how to work with guitar tones like this. No one in their right mind had produced an album this ferocious, this, this, this angsty. And the producer calls uh, James Hetfield, the singer and uh, rhythm guitar player from Metallica, and tells him, okay, the album's done without doing any overdubs on his guitar, if you can imagine. So James and John Zazula had to go and fight with the producer they were saying that it sounded like a Santana album. Santana's fantastic, but Santana is not Metallica. So imagine how thin that sound must have sounded like at that time. And thankfully, they were allowed to do overdubs to get that real Hetfield crunch. And they had the album title, they had the whole thing, Metal Up Your Ass. And 
again, with the creativity that comes with being in the studio, right? The creativity that comes from creating art together. For those that don't remember, on the demo, the No Life to Leather demo, there is no anesthesia pulling teeth bass solo. That's something that Cliff Burden, the bass player, would do live. There's a great video of them playing um, the key over in uh, San Francisco around March of 83. That's prior to them, like literally weeks prior to them going over to see John and incorporating that bass solo, which at the time you mentioned someone like Van Halen, right? Guitar led the way. So it took a lot of balls. It took a lot of balls to not have an eruption or a Spanish fly on an album, but to have an anesthesia pulling teeth to say, our bass player is so is so beyond what anyone else is doing. We're going to put a bass solo on side A of our debut album. And that sort of creativity is something that's really, really uh, interesting in the book. Um, and obviously, the peak of that comes with the album title, originally entitled Metal Up Your Ass with this sort of crude drawing of a fist coming out of a toilet seat with a dagger. I mean, real awesome. And, and, and I don't mean any disrespect in this word, but very juvenile. I think it's badass. You know? Yeah, definitely <laughs> um, juvenile. Let's take a quick word from our sponsors, and we'll come back and hear the rest of the Metallica and Megaforce story. And so tell us, um, and so the first record comes out and it succeeds. And it's one of those situations where you're an independent record label with no cash. And he has to put a second mortgage on his house to get enough so he can get some copies in some stores and get some money coming back in. But now he's got the problem of there's so many orders. He's got, you know, he's on a treadmill and he's constantly behind on the cash flow. But that doesn't even slow him down. Dude keeps signing other bands. And these kids from Anthrax that you mentioned are hassling them and hassling them. And then they, and, you know, they give him demo tape after demo tape and it's just not quite there. As much as he likes them, you know, he's got high standards. He's working with Metallica. And then they give him a demo tape that he does like. And boom, he's got another band on the label, and he starts licensing these European bands as well. That you know, Raven and Venom and and you know, Man of War is an American band, but they they had a European album deal. Most of their audience has always been in Europe. And license them and gets them out in the U.S. You know, what was the dude thinking, and how did he pull it all off? You know, it's honestly, again, unreasonably insane how much workload he put on himself, right? If he's working with these new bands, he has these high standards for what he wants to work with this, as he calls them, obnoxious uh, kids from, from New York and anthrax keep bugging him. Listen to our demo, listen to our demo and everything is, you know, not to his standard. And they finally are able to do something with soldiers of metal. And then they released their first debut album, fistful of steel, He's bringing in, like you said, these bands, Merciful Fate. He's doing Melissa. Um, I, I think, and I asked him, right, how did you get through all this? And it's a pretty old school sort of way. He said, Harold, I woke up in the morning. I worked 
And at night, I went to bed. So I guess there wasn't a lot of, oh my gosh, what do I do? I'm freaking out. I think it was just, I got to wake up. I got to do what I got to do all the way. He was pulling 20-hour days, 21-hour days, sleeping, as he says, with, you know, Lars's foot here and, you know, James there and everyone's piling up on each other and um, Merciful Fate's at the house and Venom is at the house and Metallica's at the house and he has to kick out the bands because he's got a family and a business to run. It is, like you said, the it sort of starts piling up, but gradually these things start selling, right? And gradually more and more, uh, like the American audience for metal, the underground audience at least, is recognizing these bands, especially with that incredibly infamous Raven and Metallica uh, 83 summer tour, right? Where they're hitting middle America, Bald Knob, Arkansas, and really spreading this word of metal. Um, then obviously you get into his work with Anthrax and that, that band really becomes his baby. It's almost as if Metallica is his first child, but Anthrax is his baby. Anthrax is the band that he watches grow all the way really up until the major labels come. Um, and I'm not sure, dude, I don't know. I'm, I'm not a, a workaholic. I'm not sure if you are, but I'm, I'm not a workaholic. I like to just have my long weekends and it's, it's a little, it was stressful for me just to hear what his days were like. <laughs> yeah, especially, you know, and he's working with his wife, who's a key part of all this. So we should be talking about Marsha a little bit more, but obviously he's kind of the front man and the storyteller, but the two of them are doing the shoestring business, multiple businesses, because they're they're running the record store, they're promoting shows, they're managing bands, they're putting out records, and they're having these bands come stay at their house. And like you mentioned, Merciful Fate, great band, love them. But you know, King Di Diamond is an avowed Satanist. All the members of Venom are avowed Satanists. It's like yeah, yeah. you've got small children, you've got these lunatics in your house. You know, it's 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 completely insane. And I'm gonna jump ahead a little bit for our next song, but I got to get this in here because it's so historically important. And this is Anthrax doing "I'm the Man," the first metal hip hop song. That's Anthrax Legendary, I'm the Man, and that's you know that's the reason that Anthrax gets a shout out on the second Public Enemy album, and and we'll talk about that a little later when they you know end up touring with Public Enemy, and you know without that Anthrax I'm the Man single, there's no new metal, uh, there's probably no. not Rage Against the Machine, you know it's a, it's a it's just a, a world historical moment there, but before we get 
further into Anthrax, let's wrap up the Metallica story because he sends him off to England. He's got a partnership with a British company that's helping finance the recording. But while they're over there and he's so busy back home, the two parties drift apart. And, you know, they open the book with a chapter on uh, the night that he sees Metallica playing one of their first big shows after Ride the Lightning comes out. And there's some people he knows from Electra Records. And there's some people he knows from Q Prime Management who managed Def Leppard. And next thing you know, he's not Metallica's manager anymore. And he's not their record label anymore. Yeah, it's it's definitely, that's, that is where we wanted to start the story. I, I wanted to start the story there. I, I, was, I was very adamant about wanting to start it there because here he reaches this sort of musical peak, career peak, having all these three bands um, in Raven, Anthrax, and Metallica signed this big show. Uh, Joey Ramone is in attendance. Everyone in New York is in attendance. But like you said, there were all these people from Electra Records and Michael Lalago is there. That's a great, great documentary about Michael Lalago on uh, Netflix called uh, Who the Fuck is This Guy? Or, or Who the Fuck is That Guy? The Story of Michael Lalago. And basically Metallica decide, hey, look, we just want to move on to the major labels. You know, peace and love to John Z and Megaforce, but we're on to this next thing. And which was fine. But when they decide to say, hey, look, we're also dropping you as our managers, that's really where the divorce happens, you know, where it's, oh, okay, so we are no longer working with one another. And I think that even though as much as that hurt him, uh, either personally or, um, you know, uh, professionally. Definitely financially. (laughs) Yeah, and, and financially, but he he then is able to use that, that sort of settlement money in, into breaking other new bands into making the albums that he's working on better um, into signing and developing newer bands, because it's, it's really, really amazing how much he was releasing at that time. And and what you you're know, he, what you're saying about um, using that money from Metallica to finance the label, which had been extremely shoestring at that point, like he couldn't even finance Ride the Lightning's recording, you know, without borrowing yeah. money from from the international partner. But that's exactly the same thing that happened to Sam Phillips at Sun Records when he sold Elvis's contract to RCA. That's why he was able to break Jerry Lee Lewis and Carl Perkins and Johnny Cash and so many exactly. other acts. So so this is just a classic music biz tale of, you know, you lose your first baby or you your baby leaves the nest, grows up and flies and and leaves a little golden egg behind and, and lets you, you know, build a whole empire. And he absolutely does. That's true. It's on true this. because that I'm sorry because that 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 money then goes and finances spreading the disease, right? It goes and finances the SOD album. Right? And tell us a little bit about SOD because you know you mentioned Anthrax's uh, classic spreading the disease and they'd already done Fistful of Metal and um, but SOD is an unusual band because it's like three quarters of it were Anthrax members or it was the the drummer. 
and Scotty and the, one of the guitarists and the original bass player who by that time had quit. And then their roadie, Billy Milano, and it becomes, it's not a metal band. It's not a punk band. It's a crossover band. It's one of the first crossover punk metal bands starts an, again, starting a whole new genre. I mean, I, I, I've always been kind of a Slayer guy out of the big four, <laughs> personally. Okay. I mean, I love Metallica. I love Anthrax, you know, <laughs> and, and to make it, that's okay. But I always love Slayer. But this book really made me appreciate Anthrax even more. And let's hear Stormtroopers of Death. This is Sergeant D and the S.O.D. with Billy Milano and the Stormtroopers of Death. Stormtroopers of Death by S.O.D. Or I'm sorry, that was Sergeant D and the S.O.D. by Stormtroopers of Death. And and well, what I was saying was this book really made me appreciate Anthrax much more. And I've I've you know I was never a new metal fan when it was happening in the 90s. I was kind of not listening to new music at that point because I was already in my late 20s. And and but now I can look back and say, wow, you know that was historically important. And Anthrax is at the the heart of that, and they're also at the heart of I mean, they brought the metal scene and the hip hop scene together and they brought the metal scene and the punk scene together. And S.O.D. isn't just some side project. I mean, this was a massively successful album for an underground album. And they basically had to break up. I mean, Billy Milano ultimately had to form another band, M.O.D., because Anthrax was so busy that they, you know, couldn't couldn't continue backing him. I mean, it was it was, you know, really phenomenal and, and just had this incredible run there in in the eighties. And for a while he's got deals with, you know, you mentioned their original distributor, but then they cut a deal with Caroline, the independent distributor, and they cut a deal with Electra and correct me if I get any of this wrong. They, they, they signed a deal with Electra to distribute anthrax, but then they signed a deal with Atlantic to distribute everything. And so he's got, I mean, boom, Megaforce suddenly becomes a major player in the music business. Yeah, for sure. And uh, really quickly, you should have put a, a, a uh, PSA before you played SOD because any one of your listeners that was driving their car probably smashed into like the car next time. SOD is fight music as far as I'm concerned, man. <laughs> I love Absolutely. the Oh my gosh, that is like straight up like octagon music. Oh my gosh. Well, but yeah. So, you know, John then, sort of levels himself up there, right? He's got Caroline for the small independent. It's actually Island that has Anthrax and um, Atlantic for uh, sort of five releases a year. Um, and Overkill, another great band from New York with Bobby Blitz, uh, gets put on Atlantic. And now he's working with the big boys, you know? And he's got experience with that. He was on Wall Street, but it's a different animal it's a different animal because everybody wants something from you. And I think he has a sour taste in his mouth because of what happened with Electra records with Metallica, where it's, it's hard to be completely trustworthy at times or, uh, you know, maybe a, a little weary about who he's working with, but 
he is hitting home run after home run here. I mean, he puts out the overkill records. He finds this amazing San Francisco band called The Legacy, which then um, has to rename themselves to Testament. He releases Testament's first album. He's releasing the Anthrax stuff. Um, Among the Living, uh, Anthrax's third album, Breaks, you know, that incredible video for Madhouse and Cotton Amash and Indians. It's finally sort of getting to, again, I use this word very, very loosely, but commercialized, right? It's on MTV. The videos are being shown. And that's when the money comes in. And that's when it's finally being able to pay the bills. But like they say, right, more money, more stress. So it's, okay, I have all this additional money. I have to keep producing bands that are completely potent, like the ones that that I've been uh, working with. And he doesn't necessarily always just find and develop new bands, because as a manager through Craze Management, uh, he he also works with suicidal tendencies um, during uh, the time when uh, Robert Trujillo was in the band. The future Metallica bassist, the third bassist in Metallica. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, he's, he's got his finger on all these things. And like you said, right, Anthrax, again, finds some sort of extra studio time and revolutionized the, the, the genre of heavy metal by incorporating their love of hip-hop New York style uh, with, um, with some sampling and some rapping. And that sort of leads to their friendship with uh public enemy and with flavor Flav and with chuck d so really towards 87 to 91 it's this enormous peak of heavy metal i mean even anthrax um were were so graciously uh nominated for the first metal grammy alongside with metallica and soundgarden but Jethro Toll wins that one. That's so infamous. <laughs> classic <laughs> Grammy Awards moment. And let's, I, we're getting to run time. I want to talk about that Public Enemy tour because they do, Anthrax and Public Enemy do a joint single, a re recording of Public Enemy's classic Bring the Noise, and then they tour together. And there's a great story in there where John Z notices, you know, Chuck D has this enormous crew, but none of them are really do anything, doing anything to put <laughs> on the show. Whereas he's used to this really lean and mean operation. And if you have five guys in a van, one of them's doing the lights, you know, if you have six guys, another guy's doing the sound. And he sits Chuck yeah. D down and says, Hey, who's in your crew and who can run the lights and who can do sound? And and they and they mentor these guys and then years later he has this conversation with Chuck D and he says hey you know what happened to those guys that we taught how to do sound and, and lighting and he's like oh well this guy's the biggest lighting guy in hip hop and this guy's the biggest sound man in, in hip hop and I really thought that was an awesome you know cross cultural cross pollination there and it's something I don't think that uh, John Z gets enough credit for Anthrax gets enough credit for but really you know helping build the hip hop industry because you know, I saw Public Enemy in 89 and I saw him again in 99. And the, the difference between the professionalism of their live show was just immense, you know, and I, I thought it was really cool that okay. he helped them. But, but, you know, no sooner do we hit a peak than 
trouble strikes. Like, you know, they're putting out classic albums. They're also putting out albums by older artists like Ace Frehley of Kiss has Frehley's Comet. They put out a Blue Cheer album. But, you know, not everything hits. You know, there's a band T.T. Quick he really likes. It's That's kind of more of a hard rock band. Never quite works for them. And then there's a sort of final wave of Megaforce bands where he signed in like Mind Funk and King's X, which has gone on to become kind of a legendary cult band. But at the time, we're just a, a band that was on a major label that was not selling major label units. And then, boom, grunge comes along and just wipes it all out. Tell us about sort of the decline and fall of Megaforce, if you will. Sure. And I think that, you know, when 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 grunge comes, you know, it's this um, it's this adversary to, to hair metal and that's what becomes the new cool, right? With Nirvana and Soundgarden and the sort of Seattle scene that's sort of brewing and metal is dead as far as anyone else is concerned. I mean, Guns N' Roses and Metallica, that's, that's really basically it. <laughs> um, if you're in a metal band, it's, it's over. And if you run a metal label, it's over. And no one's going to want to work with you. No one's going to want to distribute these things. Uh, there are very few metal bands that are even out there in order to manage or release albums for, or the metal bands are completely changing their style to fit with what's going on. And that's sort of where the decline sort of begins. And just as much as he was hitting home runs for that good amount of time, there were some, some real sluggers out there and bands that didn't really materialize uh, for X, Y, or Z reason. Maybe some bands that needed to be on Caroline uh, on the independent label, but were on Atlantic on the major label and sold a hundred thousand albums, which is amazing if it was on an independent label. But uh, I was, I was rereading the book today because I, I hadn't read it in a while. And he, he talks about, I think having sweaty nipples, the band's, on Epic Records, and they sell 120,000 units or so, which is, again, really incredible for an independent band if it was on an independent label. Epic is the one that released Michael Jackson's Thriller. So yeah. to have an album that, yeah, so to have an album that, oh yeah, Max, Michael Jackson's Thriller, and then Michael Jackson's Bad, and then Michael Jackson's Dangerous, right? So to have an album that sells 100,000 they were automatically thrown off the label. Yeah, you're and, missing a zero here. <laughs> like, and you know, that, yeah, you're off and, by a power and, of ten, dudes. And business partnerships start getting start getting cut. And really, that's where his sort of bread and butter just end. He is cut from Polygram, cut from Atlantic, cut from Island, cut from Caroline the whole thing. And the last, the last sort of uh, moment that sort of decline is when Anthrax moves over from Island to Electra Records, right? They, they knew the guys from Electra. Electra. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And they, they knew the guys from Electra Obviously, Metallica and Anthrax are good friends, so they probably had, uh, you know, sort of 
good word to say about them, and they get this insane contract with like an insane amount of money. And as soon as that's signed, as soon as it's done, they kick John to the curb and basically say, look, we need to try something new. But it wasn't a mean-spirited split by any means. It was, okay, you know what? I think it's also good for us to have you guys no longer be with us. You know, like like you said, when your kid goes off to college, it's, I understand. You, you have to go do your thing, and I'm going to stay here and do my own thing. But once that comes, I think it was 93, 94, I'm not sure when the – Anthrax is the sound of white noise came out. I think 94. So when that split happens in 93, that's really where John sort of just decides to leave the music business, at least to the point of how much he was really putting out, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I want to get one more song in. Let's hear uh, King's X. This is Out of the Silent Planet, which is not from the album of the same name. It's from their second album, the the classic concept album. It's Gretchen Goes in Nebraska. Is that the name? Yeah, yeah Gretchen Goes in Nebraska. Cla- classic King's X, 1989. And that was King's X, Out of the Silent Planet, from the album, the concept album, Gretchen Goes to Nebraska, which to me is right up there with Queen Strike's Operation Mindcrime and sort of anticipates uh, Dream Theater. And so, again, you know, you've got, uh, uh, and John, John Z, a music man who has presided over speed metal at its peak, but he also presides over musical moments that point to, you know, punk metal crossover, the new metal hip hop crossover and to the prog rock, uh, prog metal explosion. That's not quite an explosion, but you know, prog rock becomes a thing or prog metal becomes a thing in the nineties. And I think it wouldn't have happened without King's X. So even though King's X never became like a massive seller for him, like maybe he needed him to at the time, they really were musically valid. And I think time has borne him out that that was a really wise call. And Harold, like how's John C and Marsha doing these days? You know, they're really great. Um, when we were writing the book towards a little bit towards maybe halfway through, uh, they were actually inducted into the Hall of Heavy Metal history. And um, that was like a big thing. I remember him calling me about it and him being like, yeah, I don't know, do I go? Do I not go? Is it cool? Is it not cool? And I was like, dude, you got to go. Like, you got to go and do it. And there's this really nice, beautiful event, and there was a surprise video from the Metallica guys congratulating them about it. They've, they've built this empire. They built this dynasty together, and what better American dream than to build a business with your spouse and build a dynasty out of it where, where people revere what you've done. That's the goal, man. That's, that's really the ultimate sign of success when you have someone, an 85, 
95, 2015, 2020, still coming up to you and saying, dude, the shit you released is the soundtrack to my life. You know, you paved the way for all the bad things I was doing in high school. Your music was the soundtrack behind it. <laughs> Every mistake I ever made in my life. <laughs> exactly. All the, all the bad things I was doing and taking and all the fights I got in and, you know, you know, people I stomped out in the mosh pit. Dude, it was to your music. Thanks to you. Who knows where, um, where metal would have been. We would have probably been delayed gosh, 15 years or something in, in, in where we are right now. And it stinks to dudes like John and Marsha and dude, they're fine. I FaceTime them every now and then they're chilling, always laughing, always having a, a big old smile on their face, always listening to metal. I went over to, 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 to see him and he was just blasting venom, you know, and this is to me an older man and you don't typically see older men, sort of blast venom but because this guy lives it this guy's not a poser this guy didn't kind of just do this okay i'm done with it let me go live a, a, a different life this is who he is and there's a lot of respect that goes behind at least for me the authenticity of someone who runs a business who's about the product that they're giving out you know yeah, absolutely. And Harold, it's been a real treat, been a blast talking with you about the book, which is Heavy Tales, The Metal, The Music, The Madness, as lived by John Zazula. And our guest was Harold Claros Maldonado. And it's been awesome, man. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Y'all take care, all right? Y'all stay safe out there. You too. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, James Kaplan returns to discuss his book, Frank Sinatra, The Voice. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. Heavy Tales, The Metal, The Music, The Madness, As Lived by John Zazula, is published by Crazed Management. Please support our show by ordering via the Amazon referral link on our website, LetItRollPodcast.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. 
and why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.